Good morning. <clears throat> You'll find the uh, passage of 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40 on page 177 in the Bibles. 177. And of course, this is from chapter 7 about marriage and about when to marry and when not to marry um, before he gets on to deal with uh, food sacrificed to idols. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning, they should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control, control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for reading, Peter. 
If we haven't met before, my name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Only. Thank you for being with us today as we get back into looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. It's been a while since we uh, looked at this letter last. And so as we return back to 1 Corinthians, I, I want to remind you, what is this letter all about? What's the thing that governs this letter as a whole? And my suggestion to you is that 1 Corinthians is all about helping us to see how the grace of God and the gospel shapes the way that we live. It's all about shaping the way that we live. That's what the whole letter is about. Today we've got particular commands around where our attention and our devotion goes and about marriage and singleness. But I want to start by asking you this morning, what do you give undivided attention to? What do you give undivided attention to? Perhaps it's a a show that you really like to watch on TV. Have you noticed recently how the streaming services are kind of going back to what used to happen in the good old days where they just release one episode a week? And if you want to follow your show, you've got to wait and wait for that to happen. Is there a show that you really like to watch on Netflix or one of those streaming services? For a while, for Miff and I, it was Ted Lasso. And in the week, I'd be doing whatever I do and my watch would ding and it would tell me there's a new episode to watch. And Miff and I would would wait until there was a quiet night in the week, wait until the kids were asleep or in bed, settled for the night, and then we'd be able to sit back and watch this show with undivided attention. What is it for you? What gets your undivided attention? What are you devoted to? As you think about that question for yourselves, I want to also take you back in time to 1939, to July 1939 actually, with the Second World War just about to break out. And for months, a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived in Germany, had seen the writing on the wall. He was faced with a very difficult decision because he knew that his year and his month was about to come up and that he would be conscripted, but he was both a pacifist, he didn't want to fight, and he was also the leader of a church in Germany called the Confessing Church, and he didn't want to refuse to serve and put that church in jeopardy. He was unsure what to do. And he thought of a solution, that was, I could leave Germany altogether, I could get out of this place, that would solve the problems. And so in June 1939, he took a job teaching in a university in America, and he left his church and his country behind. But he was unsure if he'd made the right decision. And then in July 1939, so just a month later, he writes to a man called Reinhold Niebuhr, an American Reformed theologian who'd given him essentially this job and this place in America, And he says this, he says, I have had time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will clarified for me. I've come to the conclusion that I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life in Germany after the war, if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. My brothers in the confessing synod wanted me to go. They may have been right in urging me to do so, but I was wrong in going. Such a decision each man must make for himself. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation 
in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. And so Bonhoeffer leaves the security of his wonderful teaching place in America and he returns in July 1939 to what will soon become wartime Germany. And I suggest to you that we see in this man incredible devotion to his church and incredible devotion to Jesus. I've been thinking about Bonhoeffer for a couple of reasons this week as I've been reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here are the two reasons. Firstly, I think Bonhoeffer, you see it in that passage I just read to you, had a wonderful grasp on the urgency of the time in which he lived. He knew that time was short. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is, is clearly reminding the Corinthian church, your time also is short. The world in its present form is passing away. But the second and perhaps the more important thing I think we see in Bonhoeffer is it's clear, isn't it, that he's so devoted to his church, so devoted to Jesus, that he's willing to leave a place of absolute security, comfort and peace, and go to a place very much different. To return to a place where he knew war was going to break out. And I suggest to you, we see their devotion. And that's the sort of devotion, I think, that lies behind 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're a Bible highlighter or a Bible underliner, maybe don't do it in the black church Bibles, but if you've got your own Bible there, I'd love you to open it and come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think Peter said it was 1,777. And I want you to turn to verse 35 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because I think this verse is at the heart of what Paul is saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, the heart of what he's saying, this is what he says, I, Paul, am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Let me go back and ask you that same question. What's what, what are you devoted to? Or put it another way, what's been distracting you this week? Maybe it was that TV show that was actually distracting you this week. Or, or maybe it's a hobby or a computer game or, a, or, or work or a health issue or a relationship struggle. There are, there are lots of things that might distract us. And distractions at one level are unavoidable. We'll see that. That's the point of this chapter, I think. But at the same time, I do want to challenge you a little bit this morning. Maybe there are some distractions that we need to put away to get rid of in our lives. Maybe we do have options to throw some of those distractions away. Do we really need to be playing that computer game? Going to that sporting thing? It is possible that today this chapter will help us address our priorities and help us think through where our affections lie see paul's strong desire in this passage is that the corinthians would have undivided devotion towards god let me ask you this morning where do your affections where does your devotion lie 1 corinthians chapter 7 it has a lot of practical advice for us it's a chapter that really does help us to see how the gospel and the grace of god shape the way we live and yet the heart of this passage, I think, is all about undivided devotion to the Lord. All right, let's move on. 
I think uh, Paul's argument in this chapter is that we'll be able to be more devoted to God if we remain as we are. Now, if you've opened your Bibles, um, uh, come back to the start of chapter 7, uh, uh, verse 25. The whole of this chapter has been about relationships and relationship status. In the earlier parts of the chapter, Paul had some advice considering marriage and those considering getting married or those considering leaving marriage. And his advice in the early part of the chapter was remain as you are. Now, nearly a term ago, I summarized Paul's point in the early part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by saying, the grass is not always greener on the other side. You might remember that picture of the cow that I had. Often we saw from, don't we think, the grass is greener on the other side or what others have is better. And Paul had been saying in the early parts of this chapter, you're free to change your status in life. You have freedom to do that. You have freedom to change your, your marital status, for example, But he was saying, don't see those things as the key to happiness and fulfillment in life. Don't think that what you don't have will will solve all of your problems and lead to ultimate fulfillment. Paul had been clear, there's nothing sinful about getting getting married. and, And for some, and perhaps even most, it's a good thing to get married. But it's not the answer. It's not the thing that will fulfill you. It's not the important thing in a Christian's life. If the first half of chapter 7 had been about marriage, then the focus of the second half of this chapter seems to be more on singleness. And I want you to see how positive Paul is towards the single life. We pick this up in verse 26. Have a look down in your Bibles at this passage. Paul says this in verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Now, before we go any further, we need to, I think, consider the start of verse 26, where Paul mentions the present crisis as part of his reasoning for remaining as you are. I wonder what you think the present crisis is that Paul is referring to at the start of this verse. Some of the commentators see the present crisis as to be something to do with food shortages or or maybe grain shortages or or something along those lines in the town of Corinth. And there are records, extra-biblical records and other evidence that suggest grain shortages of of those and those sort of things did happen in Corinth at about the time where Paul was writing this letter. And if you think about it, famine, it's a pretty good reason to not go and get married, or to stay single. If there's no food around, how will you feed young children? As Leon Morris, who was a, a commentator and a writer, said, when the high seas are raging, it's no time for changing ships. When the high seas are raging, it's no time for, for changing ships. And, and so this view here that the commentators are putting forward is that the crisis that Paul is referring to is an acute crisis that's likely to be short-term. That is, it'll rain again one day and the grain will grow and the silos will fill up and there'll be plenty of food to eat again at a later time. That's how some commentators see that part of verse 26. Others, though, seem to think that Paul here is not referring to an acute crisis like a famine, but rather he's referring to the crisis of living in this age, the age that we live in today. 
He's referring then to the crisis of living in the post-resurrection age, the age of suffering and, and tribulation as we continue in the footsteps of our Messiah, who himself suffered to the point of death. Now that view sees the crisis as being kind of less acute, less time-constrained, and more applicable to us today. What do you think? My guess is that there's probably a bit of both going on here. Verse 26, it seems, does seem to refer to a present acute crisis. Yet, as we'll see in verses 29 to, to 31, Paul clearly has the post-resurrection age on view here. Regardless of how you see the present crisis, his application is clear, isn't it? Remain as you are. Don't always be thinking about what you don't have. Don't always think of the grass as being greener on the other side. Now, why does Paul say that here in this second part of, of chapter 7? Well, in verse 28, we see that the reason Paul wants people to stay the same is that he's trying to spare people trouble in their life. You see that there? Verse 28. Okay, let's move on, verses 29 to 31. And I want to read these verses to you. This is what he says. What I mean brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. So regardless of how you understand the present crisis of verse 26, here Paul is showing us and reminding us that the world that we live in is temporary and our time in it is short. Now it could mean that it's short because Jesus is set to return at any point, at any time, or he could be saying that, well, in the scheme of eternity, each of our lives is just very brief. If you're younger than 40... You may not have ever thought about this before. You probably think you're going to live forever, but something happens when you get to about my age where you realise that that's just not the case. But we live in pretty Adelaide, don't we? And it is hard sometimes to remember the brevity of our lives and to be transformed by knowing that Jesus will come back. And it could be very soon. It's so easy sometimes to just imagine that our lives will last forever and ever and that everything around us is, is permanent. But the message of the Bible is very different to that. The Bible teaches us that the world we live in is temporary and that as Christians we are citizens not of this place but of a heavenly country. Here in Adelaide, in, in beautiful, polite, pretty Adelaide, we have to be so careful, don't we, not to hold on too tightly to the world around us. One of the best ways to make sure that we don't do that is to remember that the things around us are fragile and are temporary. And that's the point Paul's making in verse 29. And it's very easy to misuse this verse. If you're married, you have responsibilities and burdens in that relationship that you must take care of. Husbands, Paul's, Paul here is not giving you a way to shirk your responsibility as a husband. No, he's reminding us instead that marriage is part of the, this world that we live in. Marriage is part of this age in which we live and that one day, marriage will end. But eternity doesn't end. If you were told you had six months or maybe even only six weeks to live, would you do things differently? 
What would you be concerned about? Paul's reminding us here that even if it's 60 years that we've got left to live, our time here is temporary. He's saying, don't put all your eggs in the basket of a temporary world. Keep investing, in other words, in the things of eternity. And I take it that one way to do that, one way to live this out, is to keep investing in a way in which we will live with devotion to Jesus. And Paul's keen to help us see that that being single might make that easier. Paul seems to be encouraging singleness or or at least promoting its benefits here. And I want to hear this. I want you to hear this today because that's countercultural to the world in which we live, isn't it? In verses 32 to 35, Paul speaks about being free from the concerns that are associated with marriage. Some, Some translations have the word anxiety here rather than concern. I don't think Paul's saying that if you get married, you're more likely to suffer anxiety, although perhaps that is sometimes the case. I think rather what he's pointing to is that marriage gives us added concerns in life. Or perhaps put another way, marriage gives us added responsibility. When you're married, husbands, you need to give your wives attention and support. And wives, you need to give your husbands attention and support. That's what it means to be married. And so your attention is divided. Can't be solely on the things of God. Let me read to you from verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. You see Paul's point here? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Remember, we're only looking at a small section of the letter today. This is not all Paul has to say about marriage and relationships. But here he is saying marriage requires attention and time and care and that means you'll have less opportunity to be concerned with the things of the Lord than if you weren't married. And so Paul is showing us the benefits of the single life. I went to Ridley College in Melbourne to study to become a pastor and while I was there I worked at a church in Melbourne called St Jude's. I was the student minister in the church there And one day I was sitting in the office of the senior minister at the time and that senior minister was reflecting on their effectiveness in ministry, for want of a better term. And they were doing that with a little bit of a sense of sadness as they were comparing themselves with their predecessor and how their work had shaped up with their predecessor. The current senior minister was reflecting that he hadn't written very many books And he compared that to his predecessor who had written lots and lots of books. He wasn't very well known in comparison to his predecessor. Let me just give a show of hands. That man's name was Richard Condy. Has anyone heard of Richard Condy before? Put your hands up if you've heard of Richard. Just a couple of people. His predecessor was Peter Adam. Who's heard of Peter Adam? Lots more people, right? And I think he was probably right in a sense. His ministry had perhaps been less effective in some ways. He certainly had written less books But here's the thing, Richard Condy is married with two children and Peter Adam is a single man. 
Peter was able to be concerned only with the Lord's affairs. Richard had to be concerned with both his wife and his children and the Lord's affairs. Now, I want to say, Richard Condy has had a terrific ministry as well. He's now the Bishop of Tasmania. He's done a wonderful, wonderful work in ministry. But can you see how this plays out with the passage that we're looking at? Here's the point. Those who are single have less distractions when it comes to their devotion to God. Their devotion isn't divided. And therefore, Paul's able to say in verse 38 of this passage, So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Now, I want, I want us to hear this this morning. I want us to hear the way that Paul upholds the single life. Because according to Paul, it's a good way to live your life. Now, that doesn't mean marriage is wrong or sinful, or that it doesn't have a place. Of course not. This is not all Paul has to say about marriage, but it does present and show us the intrinsic value of singleness. And I think it's good for us to read about that and hear that from the Bible. But at the same time, it's useful for us to see that the value Paul sees in singleness is that it enables a single person to be undivided in their devotion to the Lord. And being single doesn't necessarily guarantee that will happen, does it? There are things that might get in the way of those who are single and their devotion to the Lord. Maybe you choose in, instead to spend your time on things like career or sport or making money or travel. Singleness doesn't guarantee devotion to the Lord, but it does enable you to be undivided. Come back to the driving verse in this passage, verse 35. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. You see Paul's objective here, his desire is that each of us would be devoted to the Lord. All of us, those who are married, divorced, engaged, single, he wants us to be devoted to the Lord. And his point is that those who are, who are single are able to have a devotion that is single-minded. If you're a single person here with us today, you have a great gift here to give to the church, undivided devotion to God and leading us in that. In the remaining verses of this chapter, Paul's clarifying his position. This stuff is not just a matter of being right or wrong. This is a matter of freedom, that we have the freedom to get married, the freedom to stay single. If you're able to stay single, that's an honourable and a good way to live your life, Paul says. But I want to remind you that behind all of this, time and time again, I want you to see that this is about devotion, being devoted to the Lord, having our minds set not on the temporary things of this world, but having our minds set on the things of eternity. I spoke to you at the start of this sermon about Bonhoeffer and about his devotion to the church and his devotion to Jesus. Bonhoeffer was executed on the 9th of April 1945. He was executed mainly for the part he had played in an assassination plot against Hitler. He was killed in the Flossenburg concentration camp and an older doctor watched on and he said this, in the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And he was a man who knew that his time was short and yet he knew where he was going. He wasn't engrossed in this world, but he longed for what was to come. He is devoted to Jesus. 
And he once preached, he once preached saying this, he said, no one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick for that hour, waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. That's a man who's transformed by his devotion to God, isn't it? I'm going to pray that we as a church would be like him, that we too would be undivided in our devotion to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Paul's letter that helps us to see how the gospel shapes the way that we live our life. We've seen many, many times the counter-cultural ideas in this letter. And today we've seen the value that you and Paul place on singleness. We thank you for those among us who have chosen that way of life or those who live that way. We ask that in your kindness you would help them to show us what it means to be undivided in their devotion to you. Father, for the rest of us, we pray that you would give us hearts that are devoted to you, even though we have distractions that compete for that. Father, we thank you for the examples of people like Bonhoeffer and others who have gone before us, who have shown us what it means to live lives fully devoted to you. And we pray that we as a church would be characterised by our devotion and love for you and your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.